On this episode of The Gross Show, we talked to Michelle Miller, the writer and producer of The Underwriting. And so I think sometimes we have to stop asking consumers what they want because they'll tell us what they think they want and actually just look at the way that they're behaving. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Mike Volpe, the CMO at HubSpot. And today I'm joined by Michelle Miller. She's a former banker of J.P. Morgan, and she's turned writer and author of something called The Underwriting, uh, which started as a, a web series and is now going to be launching as a book. And I think it's May 26th around then, Michelle, that the book That's launches. It, yeah. yeah, awesome. Well, thanks a ton for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, this is super exciting. So I think, um, you know, so quick background on just what the underwriting is. I, you know, yep. the things that I read, people called it the, the social network meets Wolf of Wall Street, Gossip Girl for Silicon <laughs> Valley. Like, what's the, what is it? We got all the, all the taglines. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a, the underwriting is a satirical corporate thriller. It uh, is about Wall Street and Silicon Valley and basically follows the IPO of a location-based dating app via the perspective of six characters who work both on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley um, and follows all the drama of the deal. But there's also a big murder that happens in the background. So it's um, it's juicy. Wow. It really tries to delve in in a fictional way to these worlds. You're very clear to point out that it's fictional. <laughs> very fictional. <laughs> so it's really interesting because I feel like in some ways, like I, ha- I have to read this because it's, <laughs> no, seriously, you're, you're, I'm going to tell you this and you didn't know this. I didn't tell you beforehand. So my first job out of college was in San Francisco doing investment banking. And I did that for two years. Then I worked at some startups out in San Francisco. And then I moved back here to Boston, went to business school, and then uh, worked at a company doing, you know, tech company doing marketing for a while, and then joined HubSpot as number five. So I've seen like, you know, you You've talk about the other Yeah, you're, I mean, well, I've seen like both, both sides, like both of the types of characters <laughs> in your books. Like I've been either been them or been very close to them. Right. And so I'm very excited to see like how all this comes together. Oh, yeah. If I were, I mean, I even had, you sort of, especially I think investment banking is one of those jobs or sort of the whole finance side is one of those jobs that like you see so many weird and interesting people that you feel like you have to write a book or a story or something about it. And if I were at all like a decent writer, uh, I would have pretended to do something, but I'm not. <laughs> Um, so well, I tell think it's us, a yeah. very interesting. They're both worlds that I didn't feel. I felt like there was content about them, but it was largely non-fictional, and I didn't feel like it had really been humanized in a way that was interesting. And I think you know your path is not uncharacteristic of a lot of us. I graduated from undergrad in two thousand six, and it was this time where you know if you had a good GPA from a good university, you went into investment banking or consulting, and then when the crash happened, you went to a startup, and so. I think that's a really um, characteristic path. And so it's, it's ripe for revealing a lot of the issues that I think modern 20 and 30 year olds are dealing with. Got it. So I want to talk a lot about the, like how this, less about the, once you had the idea, like how you launched it, because I think that's incredibly interesting. So right. let's just, I mean, the typical path would be you're working at JP Morgan, you're doing some writing. And then you say, hey, I have this great idea for a book. And then what? You write sort of a book proposal and shop it around a bunch of publishers. And then you get a book deal, right? Is that how it works well, for you? Well, first you go through like a year of rejections, Whoa, oh, wow. <laughs> which okay. I didn't think I could handle. Yeah, okay. 
there's a, typically you find an agent and then the agent takes it to a lot of publishers and then the publishers decide whether or not it's worthy. And then, you know, three years later you have a book if you're lucky. Um, and so I kind of, I, I don't know, I looked at that process, but I also looked at myself and at um, how I was reading. And I was a really big fan of, I mean, I was an English major. I love books. I love literature. And I found that I had really stopped reading because I worked a lot. And I and I got to the end of, you know, a 12 or 16 hour workday where I'd been staring at a computer all day long and I didn't want to pick up a book. It was just a really daunting task. It was also really hard to find the books that I that really resonated with me, not because they weren't out there, but just because I didn't know where to go. And so um, so I wanted to see if I could solve that. And this felt because it was a story that was so geared towards this world. Artistically, it felt like a world that like something that could be done differently if you were going to experiment with a new model. So basically, I uh, I raised money into an LLC. I replaced myself with an LLC. And then I started writing. I still had an editor and everything. Um, and I finished the whole story before I started releasing it. But in March of 2014, um, every week, I released a, an episode. <clears throat> I call them episodes. They took about half an hour to read. So they were about... 8,000 words a piece. Um, and they were free for 24 hours on my website, theunderwriting.com. So you could read it for 24 hours for free, or you could buy it as a text or audio file if you missed the free window. And we released it over the course of 12 weeks. So the story came out, um, and it was all finished in May. And then alongside that, just because the web, once I had it on a website, it released, you know, it opened this window for so many other things. I had um, a lot of transmedia elements, so there was there were DJ playlists every week, and we had business cards for all the characters, and there were finance tutorials uh, to explain the concepts that were in the book, and there were brand sponsors every week, um, and there was artwork and photography. So it was really it became this whole sort of immersive experience online, um, and yeah, that was it. That that was it, right? Yeah, just right, <laughs> that just that just that you know. Just that. I, so. It, I think we need to dive into all this because there's so okay. much going on there, right? So, so okay. So rather than writing a whole book and, okay, maybe I can understand you don't want to deal with the whole existing process to go out and get a publisher and all that rejection and things like that. So fine. But you can very easily just self-publish an entire book, but you didn't sort of pick that route, right? Mm, you sort of right. did this whole sort of incremental, like breaking things, something down into individual pieces, which I, I feel like in some ways the web was kind of made for. Right. Yes. If you look at the success totally. of like Serial, the podcast, which, you know, everybody talks about now or even right. you're even blogging. Right? right. Which I think is sort of this, you know, take a take a huge set of ideas and something much larger. In fact, even I know authors that will, as they're thinking about a new book, will just sort of blog about individual pieces of it and then totally. kind of reassemble those blog posts into a book. So I feel like in some ways the web was made for this kind of, you know, more bite-sized pieces of content, YouTube, things like that. Completely. Right. Completely. And I think that fiction just hadn't made it there yet. And so what was interesting to me was how much time when I was at, when I worked in a corporate job that I spent on the internet reading things like blogs yeah. and all the while lamenting that I didn't read fiction anymore. And if you had if I had been able to read fiction at my lunch hour instead of another top 10 like blog about how to get a flatter stomach, I would have. Right? <laughs> and so the whole idea was can you put fiction into that space? And at the same time can you resolve this can you revolve revive, sorry, the serial novel as a form. You know, a lot of my favorite authors, Charles Dickens, Henry James, even um, Tom Wolfe in Bonfire of the Vanities, all of those were initially published serially. And so it really feels like a form that is ripe for revival given shorter attention spans. 
Well, um, and yeah, and as a marketer, I think what's interesting about it is it gives you an opportunity to promote the first one, right? Right. And then hopefully get, if it's good, most of that audience to then do the second. But you also right. have an opportunity when you launch the second one to kind of promote it again and hopefully get in front of more people, right? And, and to some degree, what you were able to do over the, all those um, you know, episodes, as you called them, was kind of build an audience incrementally from one to the other, right? Exactly. Such that at the end, you had like a, you know, had a much bigger audience, right? Exactly. And from a revenue standpoint, I think the, you know, there was definitely a push to get people to join in at like week three <laughs> so that they had to go back and buy the first two episodes. Oh, that's interesting um, because they were free for the 24 hours when they launched. Right. But, but not, but so if you got, okay, right. So if you get in later, that's interesting. And it's sort of like the opposite of watching TV series now where I feel like if you get in, you know, after the first season or so, it actually it's, oh, it's almost about the same actually. Yeah. So yeah, so it's like you get in and you can get all the episodes for free on Netflix but then if you want to watch the most recent season, maybe you have to buy it or you have to watch it live. And then, you know, you're at least trying, the ads are trying to get exposed to you, right? Completely, That's completely. I will say, I think the free window is critical. I think when it comes to content that people, if you give it to them for free and they miss it, then they feel, they're like, oh, my bad. Let me pay for it. You know? Oh, you they don't feel me, bad. That's interesting. Like the psychology there. Yeah. Like you, it, it, it could have been free, but it's my bad for missing it. So I'm paying, exactly. I'm not it's actually paying for the for content. I'm paying a $1.50 penalty for not, not acting fast enough. Right. Exactly. That's interesting. And, and then they're not mad at you. Yeah. Episodes basically somewhat there, you know, you have the super fans who actually tuned in every single week and read it for free every single week and God bless them. But most people missed you know, the majority miss at least one, so they end up paying something. Sure, um, yeah. So I think that the and those super really fans are probably the ones that do the most sharing and most promotion. So in totally. some ways, you don't mind giving them to, to them for free. Not at all. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell <laughs> us, uh, tell us more about sort of that that promotion that you were doing to kind of get into it. Like, it, this isn't the kind of thing where you know the internet doesn't work where you just put one thing up there. And then all of a sudden, the entire world like Alas, links to it and shares it. But yeah, I know. Gosh, it was like that was the promise of the internet. It was just like publish something online, and the whole world Everyone is going to be there, right? Them. I mean, there's a lot of websites that get no traffic. So it's right. certainly you know you built up the underwriting.com fine. And you posted an episode there, but like, what were the things you did either before the first episode or at the launch of the first, second, third? Like, talk to us about those things. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think the the biggest thing was there was all this the transmedia stuff was yes, because I think that that's really interesting art. And I think it's fun. And the, the internet allows us to create a more immersive experience in reading. Um, but it was also that it, it meant that a lot of people were involved. So by the time, um, you know, my DJs were in London, the guy who shot my video trailer was in Chicago, the guys who the actors who read my audiobooks were in LA, my investors were in San Francisco. So by the time all of this was done, I had like 40 people who had a vested interest in posting it on their Facebook walls. And they were all in different cities, and they were all totally my 25 to 40-year-old urban professional demographic who I wanted to read. And so they all posted it, and it didn't feel like... No, it was something that they were involved in. Yeah, it was. they weren't shilling. Yeah. Which I think is really uncomfortable as a writer. But it was, you know, here's this group, and, and look at what I did for this project. Did any of them have big followings? Yeah, I mean, they're they're all... <laughs> they were all kind of in my in my key uh I knew I knew my audience I knew that I wanted these 25 to 40 year old bankers and consultants and people who were in these worlds to be reading it um and that's where most of the people who were involved came from so it worked that worked really really well okay, as a cool. starting point yeah there's got to be more than that though I mean did you, did you do any advertising were there other things that you did 
uh, are we talking about my mistakes? I wish, no. you know, frankly, it's it's humbling to admit that I wish that I had just sucked up and, and paid a lot more for PR because it's just such a slog. Um, and I was so precious about making it all very organic and grassroots, which it went well for, for that. But um, but I do think that there's value to to getting that that expensive promotion. Um, that said, the grassroots stuff that did work really well, we had Tinder accounts for all the characters. Huh, okay. So um, Brooke, who was a girl who was working with, helping me implement all of this, she and I would sit and play play Tinder for all the characters. And how did you How did you do that? Did you have Would you just like log out and log in, or did you have like actually like a different device for each character? I, I we had like three iPhones. Okay, <laughs> got it. And uh, yeah, so there were three characters who had them. One was a really hot girl who got absolutely harassed. Oh my god. I came out of dinner once and she had 106 messages and men were brutal to her. It was really a fascinating insight into Tinder. How but many, how many of them, how many of them knew it was to, the, how many of them mentioned the website within three flirts? That was our rule. So um, right, there you go. Yeah. How, how many people do you think knew it was character? Oh gosh. Versus a real less, person. Less than 15%. So most people didn't. So they all thought it was, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Okay. That, I mean, that, that game will end very quickly once some ad agency catches on. But, well, oh, um, completely. Yeah. Or, well, what, yeah. And Tinder will probably figure out a way to have like a, like a professional, you know, advertising account that'll be like $1,000 a month or well, something, right? We just finished out there. We just figured out their monetization strategy. Yeah. Totally. There we go. Perfect. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, so we did know. that. We did, uh, you know, I handed out a lot of flyers in coffee shops that I knew investment bankers were in. I won, one day I went and, uh, <laughs> we spray chalked the underwriting logo in front of the big banks. Oh, I don't know cool. if that was effective, but it was really fun. So we tried everything and it was, it was just a fun sort of throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. That's interesting. Did the, how do you know what coffee shops investment bankers go to? <laughs> you, uh, you ask investment bankers okay. where they frequent. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. So, okay. So, and what about email? Talk to me. Did you do anything with email? It sounds like a lot of Facebook, a lot of interesting kind of, you know, real world stuff that the Tinder yeah. thing I think is fascinating. I had a big email, um, email list that where, grew. Yeah. Where'd oh. that come from? Um, a lot of organic, you know, it was, it was my network and, um, Brooks network and then friends forwarded it. Got it. So okay. the people joined. You know, the other thing that you did that I, that I read somewhere was that when you, purchase the episodes. If you missed the free download window, you spent $1.50, but then you had a bunch of partnerships with companies that you felt like tied into the characters in the book potentially. Totally. Uh, and then you would get these other sort of, you know, discounts or free offers from, you know, these partners that you had, right? Talk to us right. a little bit about exactly. that. Exactly. So yeah, every week there was about. a brand sponsor. Okay. And basically how it worked is if you bought the episode, then you got a discount for the brand sponsor's website. And I took a, a piece off the back end. And that was, again, largely it meant that Harry's tweeted about me on their week, you know? Um, and, and we just had a little bit more oomph to spread the word, but also to give another revenue stream. I really look at, at writing and I've taken a lot of cues from the music industry, both as an artist where I feel like we're in a world where as an artist, you put your song up on Spotify and then a record label finds you. I think now as a writer, that's what you do too. You put your stuff. So again, going back to instead of going and getting an agent, put your stuff out online and show that it has an audience and then the publishers will find you. But also 
in terms of content and selling content, look at the ancillary revenue streams that come around the content. So, right, musicians make no money off of selling their songs. They make money off of the concerts. Um, nonfiction authors made no money or very few of them make money off of selling their book, but they get lots of money for the speaking engagements that come around that. So where for fiction are those other ancillary revenue streams? And for me, brand sponsorships seem really logical, um, as do sort of selling other, other content like the art and photography or what have you um, that you create around the, around the book. Have you ever thought about product placement? Like, I feel like that's yes, a revenue stream for movies and, and TV, right? It. Yeah. No, seriously, right? I mean, you were just talking yeah. about sponsorship of each week, but what if a company could pay to be, you know, some technology tool that the the you know folks doing the startup in your book were using to build something on top of? Right? I mean, I think yeah. there are a lot of people that would pay pay money for that. You know, it's interesting. I, that was my original thought because, hmm. especially with the digital format, it would have been so easy to write in Todd Kent used a Harry's razor set. Yeah. And with a hyperlink to Harry's, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think a lot of the young millennial brands are really self-conscious about about product placements, hmm. um, which I understand. You know, when you're a young company, it's it's really important to be hyper hyper sensitive about your brand and its affiliations. Um, I'd love to like get to a point, and I wasn't with this because I just hadn't proved it yet um, to talk to bigger brands. My dream, though, is is to get. <laughs> I really wanted Kiehl's. To sponsor this whole thing, I thought it was a nice nod to the old soap opera tradition. I don't know if you know that soap operas were, of course, like paid for by by big soap companies. Yeah, no, it was but basically it was basically pro yeah soap. yeah it was it was like typically laundry detergent. I think specifically yeah. back in the day, it was like Tide and like all the brands from Procter and Gamble. That's that's why right. they were called soap operas, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I really want to find the the new. The new soap the and new have them soap underwrite art, my yeah. next thing. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, okay, interesting. Anyway, that, that would be cool. I like that. Uh, awesome. So, talk to us a little bit about um, the LLC portion of this, right? So, I think that's something else that you did was very interesting. So, you raised money and you sort of turned. You know, for most authors, I feel like it's really them and they're doing a bunch of work individually. But you had, right. you know, on the production side, you had this whole team doing, you know, videos and, and DJ playlists and like all these things, right? right? But you also, you mentioned this kind of just in one phrase at the very beginning, but you raised money. Right. And you're, I mean, you're almost, you're almost doing like a, like a venture back startup in this totally. industry that hasn't like, what, what? Why? Why? It's, it's just the way that I knew how to do things. I, <laughs> I came from this like business startup background. I was like, oh, of course you have to raise money. Um, no, but it actually, I think for me personally, you know, I was coming out of a job. I, uh, I had just paid back my loan, so I was lucky that I didn't have any debt, but, um, but I didn't exactly have a lot of money. And so I looked at myself as a creator and what pressures were good for me and what pressures weren't good for me. And tried to optimize for those, to be honest. And so money pressure is not good for me. I just kind of freak out and, and I don't make good decisions. Um, and uh, but, but people pressure, feeling like I'm responsible to people is, is good for me. And so is time pressure. And so the raising money kind of allowed me not only to do these other things, but also to pay myself enough to eat for a year um, and to feel a responsibility to people to, to like hold me accountable. Interesting. So I think yeah. that was really helpful for me. I feel like a lot of writers have that, you know, without that some other pressure that they put themselves, it's hard to finish, right? Yeah. It's hard yeah. to really kind of get the book over the finish line. I've heard from a few folks that I know that have done something like that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. And so like who were these investors? Are these people that typically do 
angel investments in tech startups? Are they other types of investors? With, you know, talk, talk to us more about that. They were mostly um, either VCs who invested personally or, or angel investors who were used to investing in tech. And of course, there was also the, you know, they all invested in this and had the first right to invest in whatever I do next to, to expand it, which is very much the plan. Um, I think that I'm, I'm one of these rare... <laughs> maybe increasingly rare in the valley but i didn't want to raise 10 million dollars and promise a billion dollar of 10 million how about 100 million 100 million whatever the valuations are so crazy right now but i think like there's real value in saying i don't quite know how this is going to go yeah so give me a little bit of money and let's try it with this one and then we'll see um and so so i think that this has been a real success but i didn't want to I don't know. Maybe maybe that was a mistake, but um, but I like I like starting small and proving it before I. No, before I think I I, I I'm a huge fan of that. I think it makes a lot of sense, uh, and I think what you did creates a good sense of alignment. What what's their expectation in terms of returns, right? Because I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, fiction authors, especially also nonfiction too, but mm-hmm. fiction authors typically don't make a lot of money, and like unless you're at the very 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 top of the charts. I think yeah. most of them don't make a lot of money or you're lucky enough to sell movie rights or you're lucky enough to be able to build a speaking gig off of it, right? So right. the industry that you're entering into is not filled with a high probability of a huge amount of financial success, <laughs> right? Hence the risk. Hence the risk, um, right? But but, but, but it's also something that typically it. doesn't get a yeah. lot of venture capital investment either, right? right so right. What, what do you think their expectations were? Well, I think that we had a really good signal for, um, for a book deal early on that would uh, that would basically pay back or that would make up for the money that I had raised. And that's that's how it netted out. So um, so everything came. I mean, so before before posting the first episode, you felt like it was it was pretty clear you would be able to get a book deal. I felt like I would. Yes. yes. Okay, got it. Um, And so that was always the plan was to put it out serially and then have more leverage when you went to publishers to get a better deal than I would have otherwise as a first-time writer, oh. and also keep more control over the creative, oh, um, okay. which, again, I just didn't want this to get to get siphoned into chiclet or into uh, into something that wasn't, that wasn't true to the vision, hmm. which, again, as a first-time author, I think can happen. Um, and once you have the audience, you just, you just have a little bit more power in that talk. And so, so that was always the plan. And then they invested in the franchise. So the plan is to actually do five books of the underwriting. It, it ends on a cliffhanger. Spoiler right. alert. Um, <laughs> and so I'm writing the sequel right now, but the plan is to do five and they get a piece of everything that comes out of the IP. Right. So, um, so the book, the television rights, everything. Got it. Okay, cool. And I think so far you've sold two books. Is that right? Yes. And so you have, so, yeah. So both you and the investors an opportunity, like if those two really crush it, then obviously like you'll clean up for the next three, right? <laughs> hopefully yeah well good I mean good luck um, right I mean that's, yeah, exactly. that's I'm sure what you're hopefully thinking yeah so yeah. we sold the the first two books have sold in 20 countries now so oh wow uh, yeah so it's good wow that's incredible all right give us maybe some advice so you're someone who you just met is an entrepreneur going into a relatively traditional market right okay what are the things that they should think about in terms of maybe trying to figure out some new way to launch because I feel like at the core of all this that's what you did you took a very traditional market you had, you know, you had a good idea for a product, but you said, you know what, just, just going into that traditional market with the traditional model 
means you don't really have a whole lot of leverage. So what's a way right. to figure out how do you get more leverage and get a better, more successful launch and get going a little faster? What's any advice for folks and how to go about rethinking that a little bit? Yeah. Or? Oh, I'm so, I'm so obsessed with design thinking, um, which is, you know, audience first. So, so kind of this example of method hand soap is my favorite <clears throat> where they kind of looked at the soap industry and everybody was saying, Oh, do people like, uh, do people like foamy soap or do they like the microbeads? And they were doing all these focus tests where women were like, Oh, I really like the microbeads. And then method just went to the store and right as the consumer was in the store buying their soap, they said, what are you thinking about right now? And those people all said, I'm thinking about what this looks like in my bathroom. Hmm. Right? And so Method said, oh, I bet it'll do better if we just make a really pretty bottle hmm. that looks pretty on your bathroom shelf. And so I think sometimes we have to stop asking consumers what they want because they'll tell us what they think they want and actually just look at the way that they're behaving. And I think at least with writing and, and fiction, people are saying, oh, I don't like reading fiction. I'm sorry, I just don't read fiction. It's not productive. It doesn't fit in my life. It's too daunting. It's too long. And then, and it's like, is that true? Well, no, I don't really believe it is true, but I just think that you're read or like, I don't read anymore. And it's like, that's not true. Every analyst I know read two hours a day. They just read on the internet. Mm. And so how do you put stuff in that space? Um, so I'm not doing a very good job of answering your question, but the point is, I think that you have to know your audience first and know their behavior to a T and know what they're thinking about and caring about and then know what you have to offer. And then the whole fun and the whole business comes in matching those two things. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. You're basically saying, you know, the, the old Henry Ford, you know, if I asked customers, they would have said they wanted a faster horse, right? If you ask customers, they would have said, I don't read fiction. You should, you know, you should make two minute YouTube videos and, and, and put posts on Facebook and do all this other stuff. And you're like, wow, that's, all, that's exactly what you're saying. You're, you're saying all these words, but what you're really saying is traditional fiction doesn't fit into your life well. How can I reinvent that model to create something new that appeals to this, you know, younger demographic and, and give them give them what's fiction for that generation is what you're saying. Exactly. And yeah. so my favorite anecdote out of this whole thing was I had a friend from business school who was very, very sweet. And when I started this all, he said, oh, it's very cute what you're doing, Michelle. And I want you to know that I'm totally supporting you, but I don't read fiction and I don't read books. So I'm supporting you, but I'm not actually going to read it. And I'm like, that is totally fine. Fair. And um, at week three, he called me and he's like, can you send me the whole thing? <laughs> and I'm like, why? And he's like, well, I want to binge on it. Uh, I was like, you realize that by binging, you are in fact reading, reading a, a whole book. Like, Sorry, what's very yeah, right. clear. And he's <laughs> right. like, yeah, but it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, it's like <laughs> so, it's like people don't watch movies anymore, but they'll watch four episodes of a TV show on Netflix. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. So I don't think you can always trust, trust people um, in what they say. I totally agree 100%. Uh, final question is, why are you so obsessed with soap? With you mentioned what? the whole Kiehl's thing earlier with soap. You with mentioned soap. the whole Kiehl's, and then you went in the other thing we talked about was method. Like, oh do you have gosh, this like subconscious so soap thing? Like, what's yeah? I must. Yeah. <laughs> I think you need to talk to someone about that. I just that. really want one of them. That's that's the call. I want I one it. of them to call me and sponsor it. <laughs> perfect. All right. Well, we need we need to find a soap technology startup, and that'd be the perfect 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 oh, angle yes. for you. Fantastic. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Grow Show. We were joined by Michelle Miller. Michelle, thanks a ton. It was a blast talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. And so if you enjoyed this episode, it'd be awesome if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. Uh, you can chat about recent episodes, share feedback, and su suggest future guests at inbound.org slash growth. Uh, once again, this show is produced by Dave Gerhardt. 
Thanks again for joining us, and hopefully we'll see you on the next episode. Awesome. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? I, well, you're pretty good. I'm getting some like weird hand signals from the, from the booth. Are you using any headphones or anything like that? No, I'm not. Will that help? It's, it usually does help a little bit. Yeah, if you want to take, if you have some of those around, let's give them a shot. unplug my air conditioner because it can be a bit noisy. Ah, yes. Also, yes, yes. That that actually helped a lot. There was a little bit of like a uh, a jet engine sort of effect, which is, you know, um, it's impressive, but it was, uh, yeah. So that's so first, so that's much better. And then if you do have some headphones, let's give those a shot, but we'll see. So you and I, you and I would be sweating it out over this episode because I'm in our recording studio, which has like AC, but it's turned off because of the, you know, the noise, like, so you get like, I'm in this box and I'm staring at this through this glass window at Dave who has air conditioning and he's wearing a short sleeve t-shirt and just looking nice and cool. And it's already, it's already, it's already up like four degrees in this room. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. All right. Does that help? Oh yes. Yes. Oh okay, my gosh. Cool. So much better. That's fantastic. Yes. Great. You sound like you're almost in the next room. That's great. Uh, Dave, anything else I missed? No, uh, I'm good to go. She's good to go. You got her, you got the levels, all that stuff. Okay, cool. Michelle, <laughs> any last, uh, last concerns, things you want to talk about, don't want to talk about? Good. All your, all your questions sound good. Okay. Sounds awesome.